everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Core Consult RX podcast. Cole and I have a, a new special guest in the studio today. Yes. AJ, let everyone take a wild guess where he is on vacation. Is like, he on a is he on a cruise again? No, he's like snowboarding somewhere. <laughs> I was like, AJ, you need to go back to school. <laughs> Anyways. School is back in. Oh, well maybe just skipping then. Like let's call him USC. Isn't until, it? I, I mean know. it's January. It's late January. Yeah, I feel like it sh- he should probably be there. We'll figure it out. Anyways, we'll contact the school on his behalf. But uh, instead of having him as our producer today, uh, my my brother Joe is filling in. And so uh, we appreciate him being there. Hey, everybody say up, hey everybody? to Joe. What's up, everybody? Um, he is he is so passionate about pharmacology and pharmacotherapy that he could not wait to sit in here and listen to us talk for an hour. That's he, true. He literally couldn't wait. I didn't have to pay him or nothing. Let's see if he can stay awake. Is he our first um, guest producer? I think so. Ever had one other than AJ? We had a fake one, and Pete? then oh, no, did we let him produce? I thought he did a lot. I feel long like he sat ago. here for and like with us, and then he just chimed in a couple <laughs> things. Maybe, maybe. I don't know if we actually let him touch the cameras. Maybe not. But uh, anyways, so today we are going to be doing another accredited episode. So you guys know the drill by this point, but for those of you who are unlimited members of FreeCE.com, you can go to the link in the show notes after you listen to the episode. That will take you to FreeCE.com's website and log in, and it'll take you to the podcast or the list of podcast episodes that are available for credit. Uh, put in the password for this episode, which is going to be OCD23. The OCD is capitalized numbers two three and that will give you uh, access to a post activity test past that and you will get your one hour of acp accredited continuing education uh, pharmacists and nurses are both eligible but again you have to be a free ce unlimited member in order to actually get the credit now if you're not an unlimited free ce member then i encourage you to definitely check out the the websites they have monographs live events they got all kinds of great stuff on there plus we have a lot of podcast episodes that you can get credit for so make sure you check that out and there's also a discount code in the show notes as well so Without further ado. And if you're watching live. Yeah. Oh, yes. And you try to Thank go you, now, Cole. it's not going to be there. This is how ridiculous I am. I literally just said to Cole, oh, we'll just go live and stream this one. And then I'll just say, make a comment about how you can't get credit until Monday. And then I forgot instantly. <laughs> I was so focused on that intro. That's a good intro. Oh, thanks, man. So uh, if you couldn't tell by the password, uh, we're going to be talking about heart failure. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to cover an OCD. I don't think we've actually covered OCD. Have not we? in a specific episode. Definitely have we referenced it at times, probably when we were talking about SSRIs and brought up fluvoxamine or something like that. Yeah, yeah. But, but I'd, never- say, I'd say this is a relatively deep dive as far as what people usually do for OCD into OCD and the treatment options. Yeah. I think. Cole, you always think it's a deep dive. I know, because you're always like, it's just, we're just doing an overview today. It's just going to be an overview. And I'm like, no, this is a deep dive. I know, like, I, I know, but it's, but you can't tell people that because then they're going to realize that the depth of our knowledge is yeah, no, quite I shallow. Know. I know. Well, what we not, we're not going deep into like pathophys. Right. But we're hitting or, like all the treatment like options and alternative treatment options. That's true. We're not stopping at fluvoxamine. <laughs> That's true. That's what we're not doing. Yeah, we're not. Um, the OCD obviously stands for Obsessive Compulsive Disorder. The name is kind of self-explanatory as to what is going on there. It's a psychiatric disorder. You'll hear it referenced a lot. Um, colloquially, people saying that, you know, that's my OCD coming out, whatever. Um, there is actually diagnostic criteria to diagnose someone with OCD. Um, yeah, most people that have said that phrase, oh, my OCD is making me have to 
put the remote in a certain place or pick up the dishes and that you, just so you know you're cured yes. you don't have ocd unless it was a psychiatrist diagnosing the cells and even well and even then i'd be skeptical <laughs> <laughs> ocd psychiatrist yeah um yes very unlikely that uh that you actually have diagnosable ocd do because people, it's a lot more intense than that usually it's a lot more intense do people represent you know tendencies or like certain things that you'll hear when we're talking about these criteria do some people have um Things like that, sure. But it's a conglomerate of all of it that leads to having a diagnosis and needing treatment. And uh, especially the part where we talk about how it inhibits your day-to-day life Mm -hmm. to a significant degree. Um, uh, But first, I'll just kind of talk about what obsessions and compulsions are really quick. Um, So obsessions, they're intrusive or unwanted, repetitive, persistent thoughts, images, urges, um, and generally they're going to cause distress or anxiety. They're, uh, often the content of them is odd. It's irrational. It doesn't really, um, it's not going to strike you as being normal. It might even be magical in nature. Um, and, uh, the, it, it might be perceived that harm might happen if certain things aren't arranged in a specific order. Um, if individuals attempt to ignore or suppress the thoughts, um, often with another thought or behavior, which is the um, compulsion, or that's what they try to do with a compulsion, to try to uh, neutralize or suppress or ignore the, the obsessive thoughts. Um, the compulsions uh, are repetitive behaviors. Some might describe them as rituals. Um, sometimes it might be washing hands or checking and rechecking something. I've heard you know, references to people rechecking their locks constantly mm-hmm. uh, of, of their doors of their house or washing their hands if they're kind of obsessed with germs or something like that. Um, or mental acts like counting, repeating words silently. Um, their behaviors that the, the person feels driven to perform to reduce the distress triggered by the obsession um, or according to the rules, and it must be applied very rigidly and they have to do it. Um, so compulsions, they're often kind of they have themes related to the obsession, like washing, washing rituals um, with obsessive fears of germs and things like that. They're often not connected in a realistic way um, to the feared event, um, or it's clearly just something that's very excessive. So something that, here upon hearing, you would note that something's a little bit abnormal about that, right? Yep. And there's also some associated features as well. Um, this can kind of give you some insight as far as the you know, how their person's OCD may affect their level of psychosocial impairment, um, but it also can be a potentially a potential target for therapy and things like that as well. Um, obviously, one of the the big concerns is suicidality thoughts of harm to others. Um, the the rates of suicidal thoughts and behaviors in individuals with OCD does vary as far as the you know yeah. The, the data is concerned. Um, however, obviously, in any kind of psychiatric disorder, we want to obviously keep a patient from committing harm to themselves or others. Um, avoidance behaviors um, that, you know, may restrict someone's functioning, um, you know, cases where uh, individuals with OCD, um, places or things that trigger them, um, and that may trigger on some kind of obsession or, or compulsion. Um, there's a, an example that UpToDate gives that says, uh, for example, in, individuals with contamination concerns um, might avoid public places and uh, so restaurants, public restrooms, to reduce exposure to feared contaminants. So um, there's also dysfunctional beliefs, and so they may be present individuals with OCD as well. Uh, these may be uh, 
addressed during cognitive therapy and whatnot. Um, but it can be anything from inflated responsibility um, and the tendency to kind of like overestimate a specific threat. Um, it can be perfectionism um, and like an intolerance of uncertainty. Um, it can be overvaluing the importance of, of thoughts. So like believing that having a forbidden thought is as bad as acting on it type of situation. Um, and these, these beliefs can present individuals with other anxiety disorders as well. So these aren't like inclusive to OCD, but it's something that you can kind of uh, list out when you're making the diagnosis in order to, you know, kind of further, I guess, classify them and hopefully help get them treatment when it comes to cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, there's also like level of, of insight. Um, there's response to symptoms, um, that, uh, patients can experience so, so basically like an example would be like some individuals can experience um, marked anxiety or uh, recurrent panic attacks um, others may feel like disgust at themselves for their behavior and uh, this distress can persist until the individual attains a sense of completeness right and that would be kind of responding to the symptoms the level of insight i think is interesting and that is the degree to which the person is aware that what they're doing is kind of abnormal. Do they have insight into the fact that they're having these thoughts or beliefs that don't really make sense? They know that harm is not actually going to come, but they still feel the compulsion to do it. If they're not aware and they have a poor level of insight, it's mixed as to whether that's uh, a prognostic indicator, but there are some studies that say that uh, they'll have worse outcomes long-term if they're not aware that, that uh, what they're thinking is, not, is, is a bit abnormal. Have you ever uh, worked with any patients that have OCD? No. In clinic or anything? Not closely. I mean, I filled medicine for people that I knew was OCD, but yeah. I have not like closely worked with them. I saw um, a patient in clinic when we had our psychiatrist there, and uh, he brought me in on the appointment because he had tried a couple different therapy options and whatnot. And um, the, the patient was basically, her biggest issue was the counting, um, like mm -hmm. you had mentioned. And so she, and she had a great attitude about it, you know, dealing with this her whole life. But she said that uh, she basically counts to 20 rapidly over and over and over and over again, if she's not actively like thinking about not doing that and forcing herself not to. And uh, I, was, I was, you know, hearing that and trying to be trying to, you know, be empathetic and stuff and not, you know, just you know, like a robot or something. And right. she goes, uh, she's like, uh, listen, I should have been an auctioneer. <laughs> I just died laughing. I was like, that's, I, that's the best attitude to have. A high level of insight. But she uh, basically, um, once we got on medication, stopped the counting, and it was really cool to see the symptoms go away. Yeah. Um, so anyways, uh, diagnosis. Um, diagnosis is basically, uh, I'd say, pretty complicated um, in this particular sense. So DSM-5, um, again, and, and Cole's already said this, but this is DSM-5. Um, you know, they have to have the presence of obsessions and compulsions or both. Um, obsessions, they define as recurrent or persistent thoughts, urges, images that are experienced experienced and at some point during the disturbance uh, as intrusive and unwanted, like basically Cole, what Cole said. And uh, then the individual attempts to ignore or suppress such thoughts, the urges or images, uh, and tries them. Uh, and so some thoughts, other or other thought or action, um, which is performing a compulsion where that comes into play. So they have to have one or both obsess obsessions and compulsions there. And then uh, they also have to have... Um, the, the obsessions and compulsions need to be like time consuming. So they take more than one hour per day, basically, um, or uh, they cause clinically significant distress or impairment when it comes to the patient's social uh, situation or occupational uh, situation, um, other important areas of like just normal quality of life. And then uh, the obsessive compulsive symptoms uh, can't be attributed to like 
physiological effects of a substance, obviously. So substance abuse disorder would be different. Or if they have some kind of like other me- medical condition that would cause them to have some of those same symptoms. Um, yeah. And um, I'm going to go through the vast list of <laughs> the, the disturbance is not better explained by symptoms of another mental disorder. Well, I'll just say that there's obviously a number of symptoms of OCD that could mirror symptoms of other psychiatric disorders mm-hmm. like excessive worrying, hair pulling, um, skin picking, sexual urges, impulses, things like that. So you want to do a differential of other things that it could be like general anxiety disorder, bipolar disorder, eating disorders, um, to see if there's something comorbid or if it's actually more related to, to something like that. And that may guide your therapy because there's we're going to talk about some of the medications that are used in OCD and some of those should not be used with other psychiatric disorders. So uh, the differential is important. Um, there's also specifiers for OCD. So we have you know, specifiers for this order um, as far as like the patient's degree of insight into the illness. So um, you'd say OCD with good or fair insight. So the individual basically recognizes that the OCD beliefs um, are you know, def- definitely or probably not true um, or that they may not be true at least. If there's poor insight, the individual thinks the OCD beliefs are probably true. And then with absent insight or delusional beliefs, the individual is completely convinced that the OCD beliefs are 100% true. Um, There's also tick-related OCD, where the individual has a current or past history of some sort of a tick disorder, whether it be Tourette's syndrome, something like that, um, along, along with it. That would be kind of a further specifier of OCD. Yep. Yep. You've kind of already mentioned some of the differential diagnoses, but yeah. you want to touch on a couple of them? Yes. I mean, didn't mention social anxiety disorder or um, other. There's also a reference to OCD spectrum disorders, which mm-hmm. are other disorders that include intrusive thoughts and repetitive behaviors that can be distinguished from OCD by the nature of the thoughts and behaviors. So body dysmorphic disorder, for instance, individuals with that would focus on perceived defects in appearance and they might seem obsessed with it. So they have that obsessive, obsessive behavior. Um, but it's more related to appearance and, uh, and class maybe classified as body dysmorphic disorder. Um, there's also excoriation disorder, the repetitive behavior, um, of skin picking, um, that's not triggered by an obsession. So something on that spectrum, but that can be distinguished from OCD. The, uh, I feel like every time they have a new, ICD, whatever, like nine. Then when nine went to 10, I feel like they add so many specifiers to things, which I guess is a good thing. But at the same time, it's yeah, very I guess it's, I guess it's, you know, you can be more specific with your diagnosis, but yeah. uh, I'm sure it's complicated. Yeah. I liked it back in the good old days when you just said anxiety for everything. <laughs> yeah. It was way easier. And then everybody got benzos. Yeah. And then now well, people died. Yeah. And... It's okay. So we, yeah, it was probably good that we changed. <laughs> so when it comes to actually, you know, you've, you made the diagnosis, and we'll talk about a couple of comorbidities in, um, towards the end, but um, when it comes to, you know, treatment options, some of the first-line options that you're going to be very familiar with. Cole's already mentioned one, the fluvoxamine. Uh, if you're not familiar with that, it's an SSRI, and you don't really see it too often in, like, general depression and whatnot because it was, I, I believe, the first one FDA approved for um, actual OCD and not just, like, major depressive disorder. So fluvoxamine is, is definitely um, one that you, you'll probably see patients on that have OCD, but also um, fluoxetine is a big one, and then sertraline is also approved. Um, now, peroxetine also has an FDA approval. However, it's 
if, if you've heard us talk about paroxetine on this on the show, you know we're not huge fans of that particular uh, agent. It's it, it tends to have a really short ha- not tends to it has a really short half life. I don't know why I said tends to. It's it changes its kinetics. I mean, <laughs> maybe it could, could depending on if their their metabolism. That's true. You know, it's true. Thank you, Cole. Thanks for saving it. You know, ultra rapid or whatever. yeah, yeah. Perfect. So if, if paroxetine, you know, has fairly short half-life compared to the other ones uh, in that class, and so the risk of discontinuation syndrome is much higher with paroxetine. Um, you also have to worry about uh, becoming pregnant if uh, for our, um, you know, younger patients maybe who are trying to conceive because paroxetine, if you remember the old uh, pregnancy ratings before they you know, went along with these much broader explanations and whatnot, kind of gave the numeric or the uh, letter grade rather, um, rather. And paroxetine, I believe, was the only one that was classified as D. Mm-hmm. Um, the other ones were, were C. So there's been um, some subtle defects uh, that have been seen with um, with paroxetine. And so there's there's some data with uh, some obscure data with some of the others, but it's not um, is, right. as strong and, and convincing as paroxetine. So that's a concern. It's not as convincing, but there is there is some stuff out there, especially late term use mm-hmm. of SSRIs could cause some concern. So it's at least a risk benefit. Yeah, talking for sure. Oh, with, of course. With the patient. Yeah, I think any medication during pregnancy yeah. would be a discussion. I never thought that that would be like you know, I mean, I'm just a bystander in the process, as, you know, as, as you're, as you were as well. But I feel like I was always kind of like, oh, you know, when we, when me and Jenner are finally having a kid, I'll be a lot more calm, cool, and collected about adding medication. Yeah. And I was like double checking everything. No, I, uh, it's hilarious because I took every single little medication that she was going to take so seriously. And I was reading, reading it and it made me kind of feel a little bit guilty about my previous approach to medications and pregnancy, which was being a guy. Well, being a guy and more related to like seeing the pregnancy category and just saying, well, A through C is good. Letters don't divide, define me. DNX, no good, which partially to me makes sense why they took those away so that you look into the specifics and you dig into it. Right. And you can give an educated answer to a patient so that they can make an informed decision versus saying like, Oh, it's D. Yeah. And they're like, what? And I'm like, well, you know, D is bad. C is okay. Or something like that. But I, yeah, I I did the same thing. Yeah. Just like reading about everything I could to (laughs) even stuff I knew, like I'd always thought was okay. I'm like, you know what? Maybe, maybe I should look into this. But I mean, the other thing to consider with paroxetine too is the it's a two D six substrate, so you have to worry about uh, drug drug interactions, and and you do with fluoxetine as well. But paroxetine also already having more common side effects and things like that, or more likely chance of side effects compared to the other SSRIs. If you start messing around with the concentration because of a drug drug interaction, it can make that even worse. So basically, the moral of that story, and you guys hopefully knew this already, our opinion on it, but we don't really like paroxetine. No. So the options and. Uh, we, yeah, I should also say that. Uh, but you'll see that it's FDA approved. I don't know, I yeah, guess yeah, you yeah, yeah, that, yeah. But it's, it's FDA approved for a CD, but we still don't prefer it. Um, and I, I will say, uh, and if you've heard me mention this name before when we've done um, like depression and some other things, but uh, David Osser is uh, um, a psychiatrist out of Harvard Med that has a bunch of really good uh, psychopharmacology algorithms. And so we're kind of basing this episode on a paper he got published in 2019 and then um, just did a talk uh, recently on um, psychopharmacologyinstitute.com. It's a pretty cool yeah, I was looking over free his, CE website. I was looking over his, some Not stuff CE, on... I'm sorry. CE website is what I meant CE to say. Website. I'm so used to saying free CE. Sorry, guys. I was uh, looking over some of his um, talk and his references and... Imagine what it would be like to reference yourself 
in a CE talk you were giving. Oh, so great. if we were just oh, I'm referencing giving myself, our please. CE talks and we were just referencing M. Corbino the whole time. Oh, man. I should, you're we, the one who wrote the evidence. Right. Should I? I could always quote myself on the podcast. <laughs> it's kind of published. We can. We, it's on, not necessarily on peer future reviewed. podcasts. We can reference back to ourselves on previous podcasts. That's a good idea. Mm. We'll never remember what episode though. Oh yeah, that's your job. Yeah, there's no way we'd remember. Dosing. That's where things get a little bit different when it comes to SSRIs and uh, treating like depression versus uh, SSRI dosing in OCD. So fluoxetine. We'll start there. Typically. Depression, you're not seeing more than 40 milligrams for a lot of patients. There's always exceptions to that, but a lot of patients don't go over 40 milligrams. Um, the the standard dose for OCD is 20 to 60 with a package insert max dose of 80. With fluvoxamine, it's 100 to 200. It's kind of like the standard dose for OCD. Uh, maximum dose, again, package insert 300. Sertraline, 50 to 100 with a maximum dose of 200. Now, I think some of the things that can happen as far as like getting the, the dosing conf- confused between this and, you know, depression or what have you is we, we know that a lot of times OCD does need like higher doses of these SSRIs. And so I think the tendency might be to kind of escalate the dose either much quickly or much quicker than we normally would, mm-hmm. or right from the start, even like starting somebody off on a higher dose of something, which SSRIs are obviously not without side effects. You know, Proxetine, we were kind of dogging on a little bit, but all of these have the risk of sexual dysfunction, um, you know, weight gain, mm-hmm. uh, fatigue, mm-hmm. um, or insomnia, depending on the one. And so there's a lot of different side effects you want to, you know, mitigate and especially when you're talking about these higher doses. So ideally you want to slowly titrate up, you know, to the standard dose first, Mm -hmm. give that a process, you know, a time period of eight to 12 weeks. And then if the patient's having a partial response, then escalate the dose. Yeah. So it's almost like, I think of it as like kind of like a, where I would normally augment Mm -hmm. with, if I'm treating general depression, I would just bump, keep going with the dose because there's way less options when it right. comes to OCD as far as uh, treatments that have been shown to be efficacious. So we maximize the dose at that point instead of augmenting um, versus switching. Right. And we'll talk about some of the augmentation strategies. If um, you're lucky. Yeah. yeah. If you, if you stick around <laughs> long enough. Um, yeah. A lot of the data is, I mean, we have data. It shows that it works, but it's relatively small trials compared to other things you see for other psychiatric disorders, depression, and bipolar disorder, and things like that. Um, with some of them, you know, for instance, with fluoxetine, it's showing that between like 20, 40, and 60 milligrams, they're all reasonably effective or similarly effective with all those. With other ones, you'll see that you have to push the doses higher with other SSRIs. So um, it's not, a, it's just not an exact science. So I think that's a good description that Mike gave of kind of how to approach it. Thanks, man. Um, so fluvoxamine is, while it was the first SSRI approved for OCD, it doesn't mean it's the best SSRI approved for OCD. Definitely has some data um, around it because um, it was the first one. Uh, but then fluoxetine and um, sertraline, we would consider them all similarly effective. It's not like you prefer fluvoxamine over either of the other ones. Um, there is some data with fluvoxamine CR um, where, so with a lot of these patients, there's actually a low chance, a low-ish chance of remittance um, if you get suppression of symptoms um, compared to, you know, maybe some other psychiatric disorders. Uh, but there a lot, so a lot of the studies don't include many patients or any patients who would be considered quote-unquote remitters. Uh, but there is some data with fluvoxamine CR being treated with patients who had remitted um, and had some, um, some data. So that might be something to consider if you have a patient who does. 
And then with sertraline, I thought this was kind of interesting, but there was a study looking at sertraline and specifically for OCD. They looked at 50, 100, and 200 milligram uh, doses and basically found versus placebo that all of them were equally effective. So I, I thought that was kind of interesting uh, that 50 was equal to 200 as far as statistically you know, being significant bit more than uh, placebo. Right. So um, that's definitely not what I would expect. Um, and as we'll talk about, you know, that, that may be a, a reason to continue going up on the dose com- compared to where we would normally think to, to kind of shut it off. Right. Um, now, the the other thing to, to think about is kind of like the, the time frame because there's a lot of kind of debate around mm-hmm. when to start, stop, if we're going to stop these medications, how long do we keep the patient on and blah, blah, blah. Uh, they did a study that was looking at um, maintenance of sertraline in OCD patients, and um, it was 80 weeks uh, long. It was 223 patients. It's a pretty and, long time. Yeah, and uh, it was studied for that length of time, and, and basically they had greater effectiveness than placebo um, on the, the dropout rate due to inefficient, insufficient response. So patients were at least feeling like it was helping it, by being on the actual treatment arm. Um, also, there was a greater number of exacerbations of symptoms, um, by the criteria they used in the study uh, and, you know, for the ones who went off their sertraline. So basically they're, you know, when they came off the sertraline, they ended up getting symptoms pretty bad. Right. So it's definitely something that uh, at least it's some, some data that supports continuing this or at least for not a short period of time and, and kind of allowing uh, the patient to have a, a decent trial period. It does. And, and there's two sides of the coin to that too. So 35% of patients who stopped sertraline, about a third of patients got worse. 12% of the patients who stayed on sertraline also got worse, uh, quote unquote, in this trial. And so there's one way to look at that. So if 35% of the patients who came off sertraline got worse, that means 65% of the patients who came off sertraline did not get worse after stopping the medication. So it is not unreasonable to consider stopping if the patient feels comfortable with it and their symptoms, you know, don't return because they very, they may not. Um, of course, we talked about all the side effects that can occur. So it doesn't have to be a lifelong situation, especially if the patient is saying, I'm having these side effects. I mean, I can live with them, but they're not ideal. Um, maybe you say, okay, you know, it's been, uh, it's been a year, it's been a year and a half. Why don't we give it a try off and see what happens if the symptoms come back, then we can go back on it or whatever. Now you may be wondering, but I like citalopram and escitalopram. Those are my favorite SSRIs and they're not FDA approved, but we do stuff off label all the time. So usually no harm, no foul, except we do got to think about QT prolongation in this case. Um, so we know like with citalopram, you know, we kind of have the max dose listed at 40 because after that, that's when we start running into a lot more significant issues with you know, moderate QTC prolongation. And so we don't have to worry about that a lot of times, especially in younger patients when we're treating with, you know, up to 40 milligrams, especially 20 milligrams. But if we were to start escalating or, you know, 60, 80, you know, whatever you would end up using for OCD, if you were, um, that could definitely be problem from a cardiovascular standpoint yeah. um, and same with as citalopram right so the moral of the story though is your first line option ssris and specifically the fluvoxamine fluoxetine sertraline those are our three go-tos and you would expect again to have a standard dose in that range that standard dosing range for eight to 12 weeks or so if you do get a partial response but not full remission you're going to basically escalate the dose to a much higher dose than we would use for other states. Right. Um, 
and you know, we touched on a lot of side effects, so we've talked about them before, but I'll just review a little bit um, with the sexual side effects being kind of the biggest one that causes people to stop the medication. Um, on the high end, some estimates have it at 80% of patients experiencing sexual side effects. Seems high, but it's quoted. So um, what they're going to see is a possible erectile dysfunction, delayed ejaculation, loss of libido. Something to talk to the patients about before starting. Um, and, you know, definitely if it's if it's working for their OCD, which can definitely significantly affect their OCD symptoms, can significantly affect their day-to-day life and their quality of life. Um, then, you know, talking to them about maybe some options to mitigate the side effects, whether it's, you know, sildenafil or something similar um, that they could use if they want to stay on the medication because it's working for their OCD. But it can definitely be a barrier to, um, to starting the medication. Also, the... Um, do you want to talk a little bit about the GI bleed Go risk? For well, it. I know you got it because I, I thought it was very interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I did too, actually. I've heard maybe a reference to it, but I, I, had, I hadn't really looked into it too deeply. And I hadn't seen this this meta analysis, yeah. but it was from the, the American Journal of Gastroenterology from 2014, uh, basically looking at SSRIs uh, who, in, in patients who were on anticoagulants, antiplatelets, and when being on that combination, um, especially when they combine them with something like NSAIDs, you know, ibuprofen, naproxen, things like that, uh, the risk of having a GI bleed was 900% higher over the course of one year. Yeah. I, I definitely would not have guessed that. I want to look deep into the numbers because anytime there's a massive percentage like mm-hmm. that, you know. They're doing some funny math. Sometimes there's some Maybe. funny math. I don't think this is a situation where you would have any reason to do funny math. Like, Yeah, because of what would be the benefit? What would be the benefit to anybody to... You Sponsored know? by Celebrate. Right, I know. Like, um, So I think... I'm sure it's legit. I just want to look at yeah. see like what the numbers were like. Um, and I guess whether, you know, the seriousness... We didn't, we didn't look into it that deep, but looking at the seriousness of the bleed and blah, blah, blah. I, but yeah, um, it, it's way higher than I would have ever... I mean, I've definitely been guilty of discounting the bleed risk with SSRIs. Yeah. I mean, I feel like, I feel like the only time I would really ever even think about it would be in that case where they're on anticoagulation or especially if they're on antiplatelet. That's usually what I would think of is anticoagulation. And then, I don't usually think of NSAIDs. No. And, and for those of you who aren't familiar with like the mechanism behind that. So when we talk about serotonin reuptake inhibitors, uh, platelets, if you remember one of the things that they use to kind of like mediate their platelet aggregation and kind of signal other platelets is, is serotonin and they're not able to produce their own serotonin. So they basically use a transporter that takes it in from their environment and brings it into their dense granule for storage to be able to be used to, for that purpose. And, uh, if we block the reuptake of serotonin, we also can block that transporter on platelets. And so we have a lot less serotonin available for platelet aggregation signaling. Now, that being said, they also have von Willebrand factor and these other platelet aggregation, you know, ADP, things like that that they can utilize. And so it's not like you just shut down your platelet's ability to to form a plug, uh, but it does decrease their, their platelet plug effectiveness. It's the first time plug. I've ever said that. Yeah, no, I don't think I've, I've ever said that before either. So... That's so our I, next T-shirt. To me, the moral of this side effect story is don't discount the bleed risk with SSRIs, especially if they're taking NSAIDs or other anticoagulants. Yeah. Because um, I have surely have in the past. Mm-hmm. Though um, we can significantly mitigate that risk if they're if they take a PPI, yes, omeprazole or otherwise. Um, we're aware of that with NSAIDs in general. But um, we have some data with SSRIs plus NSAIDs plus PPI to not bring the risk down to nothing, but to significantly mitigate it. Um, I, you know, I hate, I hate adding on an extra medicine to mitigate a possible risk in this situation, but it could be a good thing to do. 
what would be preferable is that we cut down or decrease the NSAID, but if that's not a possibility, then to mitigate that risk while they're doing both of these, a PPI would definitely be an option. And the other thing is obviously the the suicidal ideation box warning that's on SSRIs. Typically, we're thinking patients younger than 25 years of age. And the overall risk, yeah, they say is around 2% increased risk over placebo. And I think that's one of those things because a lot of patients will get it. There's kind of a bimodal effect where, um, or occurrence, I would say, where patients will either get diagnosed when they're younger or you know, they, they have another kind of spike in, in occurrence uh, in adult, in early adulthood. But if you're dealing with younger patients, then that might be, they might be more prevalent to actually, you know, dealing with this type of a warning. It might be something to take a little bit more seriously, especially for those of us who don't deal with peds. Right. I can definitely, definitely what's not my forte. So yeah, keep that in mind. Um, another, a couple other side effects I just wanted to mention, which some were aware of hyponatremia from SIDH, um, but a risk of falls, I, I hadn't seen really seen this before or thought of it much. And if I thought of it, I would have thought of it in terms of like a dizziness or something, dizziness or histamine kind of sedation mm-hmm. sort of thing happening in a patient who's elderly. But uh, there's there's something that can happen in patients over 65 called increased postural sway from taking SSRIs. And that can increase the risk of falls, which I thought was interesting. It could also affect cataracts if you mm-hmm. have cataracts. So in the elderly, a couple things to be aware of. So, um, osteoporosis bone fracture risk has also been shown, but the risk is kind of like unclear as far as how worrisome that should be. But again, the, the lots and lots of things, at least to think about, um, peroxidine we've already mentioned being one, not a good option, but also a, a interaction with 2D6, uh, inhibitors and, uh, or it, it causes 2D6 inhibition. I think I said a substrate, it was a substrate earlier. It, it's the inhibitor. So you have to worry about patients who are on other medications. Um, fluvoxamine is a 1A2 inhibitor. Um, and then flu, flu, uh, sorry, fluoxetine. I shouldn't have said those two back to back. Fluoxetine is uh, also a 2D6 inhibitor. So drug-drug interactions with those meds, especially 2D6. We don't have to worry about 1A2 nearly as much. But 2D6, obviously a very big uh, SIP yes. enzyme family, subfamily. So let's talk about um, kind of the progression, treatment progression. So we've chosen one of these three. We're aware of the side effects. Um, we've thought about the diagnosis and the comorbidities. And we're starting them out. Um, Maybe we've gotten them to the standard dose or we're starting them on a standard dose of an SSRI. Um, And here's Dr. Osser and his group's take on kind of where to go from here. So a reasonable trial, they say, is 8 to 12 weeks. But you kind of want to reevaluate after the first 5 to 7 weeks to see how they're doing. And depending on how they're doing, you're going to kind of go in a couple different directions. Are they having a satisfactory response? Satisfactory response everything's good. Let's continue the way we're going until things aren't satisfactory. Um, a partial response Mike kind of, um, mentioned before, um, if we have a partial response, then we may want to augment. We may want to push the dose. Um, and then also we want to consider what to do if there's no response. So we'll kind of take each of those and talk about them a little more individually, but I'll talk about the satisfactory response first, which is that, um, only about 40% of patients will achieve a satisfactory response after their first trial. So for the other 60%, which, which is, you know, not terrible, yeah. but it seems like... Um, Honestly, I feel like it's better than uh, it's like, major depression. Like major depression might be in the 30s or low mm-hmm. 30s, something like that. So yeah, it's not bad. You're, it's probably the, about as good as you're going to get with... with um, Especially the standard dose. With psych meds, right, at standard dose. Uh, but the other 60% were either going to have to increase dose, augment... 
um, switch or, or kind of evaluate the next steps that we'll talk about in a second. Yeah. So, um, they, uh, they have like a scoring system, kind of like we use, you know, PHQ nine or, um, you know, one of those types of scoring type questionnaire forms to kind of establish a baseline when the patient's starting medication and then sort of quantify their improvement or lack thereof. So like in depression, you get your PHQ-9 score, and then you would reevaluate that, that same questionnaire after they've been on therapy. Um, they have the uh, Y-box score for OCD, um, and so that's what a lot of the times the studies and whatnot will utilize to kind of see if the patient's improving or not. And actually, instead of the patient just telling you, yeah, I feel a little bit better or not, you can actually quantify it and make it a little bit more of a an exact science, I guess. I no. wanted to point out that this is a Yale score. Yale Brown mm-hmm. uh, is what the YB stands for. Obsessive compulsive score. Yeah, and I, 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 um, I wonder if it was difficult for the Harvard guys to kind of shout out the Yale score so much. That'd be you know, so funny. Even Brown, I suppose they're all, you know, all those big wig schools are rivals in some way. I imagine when you get to that level, you just don't really care that I'm much. Sure Maybe, not, I don't but... know. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe they're wearing the Letterman jackets. I don't think I don't think I could ever care about my college or ever not care about my college rivalries. Really? No matter what. Level I never I gave. A, I would be in the other team. Well, I'm, a big, I'm a big football fan. That's so true. like, you yeah. know, I married a Georgia fan. Mm. Who we, you know, you're we'll see how that's going. South Carolina. South Carolina. Yeah. Yeah. So Jen, South Carolina, general family went there, and then like Joe went to Clemson, and like my whole family likes Clemson for I guess that reason and whatever. So I have to like, and I could care less. So I have to like pretend. <laughs> I just root for whoever's well, team. Well, it would have been nice to care the last few years. You've had a pretty good go of it. Yeah, well, but I'd, then I'd feel like Georgia a has obviously had a pretty good go of it. Yeah, they're pretty solid. But South Carolina, on the other hand. Yeah. We're, we're we up, did okay this year. Up and coming. We're up and, yes. <laughs> Something that is like that. a good way to put it. All right, so um, typically speaking, if you do get a satisfactory response, we want to maintain treatment for at least one to two years before assessing whether we want to taper and discontinue. Um, and we've kind of already talked about the evidence with sertraline, but extrapolating that kind of data that are agents as well. Um, if they have a unsatisfactory improvement, so basically a partial response, um, then you would want to increase that dose, like I already said earlier, to the, the max tolerated. Now, it may not be the absolute max dose, but we want to see at least if the patient can tolerate higher than they're already taking. So again, kind of thinking max dose-wise from a package insert type standpoint, 200 milligrams of sertraline, um, 80 milligrams of fluoxetine, and then 300 milligrams of fluvoxamine. Uh, if at that point, you know, the patient is, you know, tolerating them, you know, you may think, okay, well, if you go from 40 milligrams of fluoxetine to 80 milligrams, that should be a huge jump. Um, the a meta-analysis that kind of was looking at, you know, the improvement that you get from those higher doses, um, it's like a 7 to 9% improvement in OCD symptoms on the highest dose of SSRIs. So it's not that much of, an, uh, of a percentage as far as the, the change. So when you either, it's kind of a ceiling effect. You, you get a, a, you know, a much better likelihood that first 40 milligrams of fluoxetine as far as improvement than you would that last 40. And so you kind of have to think, if the patient's really struggling with the side effects and things like that, just kind of keep that in mind. That may kind of make it a little bit easier to transition to a different, another strategy if you need to, just because it's not like you're going to see you know, radical changes by being able to escalate the dose. But if they can tolerate it, then definitely, you know, continue to go up on that dose and right. maximize it. Right. Um, and there is some evidence of improvement with those higher doses. Mm-hmm. So about a, you know, seven to nine percent um, improvement with the highest dose versus the standard dose, I believe. Yeah. Well, and the, the uh, and they're all better than placebo. We've already said that. So yeah. 
that's, you know, it's so, nothing else. This is what I thought was interesting about his algorithm. Um, I, li- I like this. This piece. This is not not something I would have ever thought yeah. to do. Well, this is why he's much more. This is I why know. he's writing papers and we're talking on podcasts. But it makes sense. And maybe 100%. maybe I would have thought like, do this in this situation. Maybe it's because I would think of general depression where there's a million other options. But when you don't have a million other options, you want to make sure that you're optimizing your right. the ones that you have. Right. So if you we've talked about satisfactory partial, but if you have don't have a response after five to seven weeks. Um, as opposed to switching or augmenting, he recommends checking plasma levels. Yes. Anybody ever checked a plasma level of an I'm SSRI? <laughs> yeah. I know. So the, I, and I think he's, he basically says twofold. Like one, you want to basically do that to truly verify adherence because you can always check the pharmacy records and stuff like that. Right. But the patient doesn't, you know, you don't know what they're taking it once they actually get home. And obviously with these types of meds, that can be a real issue, especially with the side effects and all that. Um, and then the other thing he b- brings out is you also want to rule out any kind of polymorphism. Mm-hmm. So two of our, or well, the, one of our major options that we use, uh, fluoxetine, is a, you know, works on 2D6. Mm-hmm. Well, if they're an ultra-rapid metabolizer of 2D6, um, that can obviously pose a problem. Um, you know, other issues like the, in dealing with, you know, metabolism of it and whatnot can potentially lead to lower plasma levels, you know, from a in lower therapeutic response than somebody who doesn't have that polymorphism. Right. So as, you know, pharmacogenomic testing becomes more prevalent and widely used, you know, that's going to be a, a definitely a key factor in, especially in this type of situation where we only have a few medications to kind of choose from. Right. So if you identify that adherence is the issue, obviously you yell at them, right? Just scream your head off as loud as you can. It's very effective. Tough love. Um, Assess whether they're willing to take it, uh, talk to them about it, do all those good, you know, interviewing techniques and that sort of thing. Um, but if it turns out that they're taking it, but their plasma levels are low, which, you know, there's not a therapeutic plasma level of an SSRI. There's not a gold level like there is with lithium you know, or something like that. Yeah, yeah, lithium, something like that. Um, but what there can be is a standard range that the lab would give you what is expected based on the dose that they're taking. So if it's below what you're expecting, then and they're adherent, then it could be that they're a, a, meta, a rapid metabolizer. So if that's the case, um, consider genetic testing. Maybe we switch to an SSRI that isn't going to be affected by that SIP. Um, or maybe we just push the dose really high yeah. uh, to try to get it to an expected level so that it is as if it's a normal person taking a normal dose to see if it's effective. So you could end up with whopping doses of fluoxetine that you wouldn't expect. Well, I've, so I have seen, um, I've seen this one time down where a psychiatrist had pushed the dose of sertraline to 400 milligrams. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, that is a healthy dose. It's healthy. Um, and I was, I was probably in school and I saw that. I don't remember where I was, I was probably like interning somewhere. But now that I see that, I go, Oh, I was the dummy. <laughs> Yeah, I was. That's that somebody was somebody knows more than me. That's what that I was at that stage where like you know just enough to be right. annoying. Where you're Thinking like, you know everything. Oh, like, I'd like to point out I, that that dosing's wrong. Right. I know the package insert max <laughs> dose of Tell, telling, telling him uh, a guy's trained thirty years and something he just rips you to pieces. It's like, what well, did you see, Doctor Osser's thing? Yeah, we know him personally. No, <laughs> we don't. But uh, so. This is, we know about, you know, kind of trying another SSRI from like depression and things like that. We've, that's not like an unusual strategy. Um, it just kind of takes longer usually to get to that point with OCD because we want to really maximize one of our agents before we just cut our losses. Uh, if we do decide we want to transition to another agent, SSRI that we haven't tried out of the three that we recommend, or we recommend, when I say we, I'm talking about, you know, Call me and then Dr. Oster. And the FTA. And the FTA. Um, the uh, the three, that you just basically pick the two, one of the other two that are left over. Um, and that's how you would kind of 
give the, the second SSR a try and you kind of go through the process again as far as titrating the dose up, standard dose, adequate trial um, after you know, a certain amount of time, five to seven weeks at least, if not longer, then uh, escalate the dose if you're getting a partial response just like we did before. Right. Um, one, go ahead. Well, I, yeah, I would, so I would just say I'd probably cycle through all three of those. Um, and oh, then would you? I would. Okay, cool. Uh, and then there's there's another one we hadn't talked about, which is clomipramine, mm-hmm. old TCA that you may or may not be familiar with. Um, so this does have an FDA approval for OCD. Is it only those SSRIs and, and then clomipramine? I don't think there's anything else that has an FDA approval for OCD. Maybe old to, stuff. but like, I have to double check. I imagine these are the majority of the ones. So and Now, you, I know what you guys are thinking. Why wouldn't they look this stuff up before they start recording <laughs> or streaming live? Well, we live and learn. That's the way we do it. Um, so clomipramine is out there. Um, it's an option, but just like with all TCAs, has lots of side effects, even though it does work and it is FDA approved. So I would reserve it. Um, Definitely after the SSRIs and, you know, it's, it's not preferred. It, it has the higher, um, toxicity risk if you were to overdose like TCAs do. Um, it's just, just not a preferred option. And some of the, and they're not good studies. In fact, the one study that looked at clopramine is an augmentation option. Um, showed that it kind of ends up not really having that much more of an effect than placebo really. Uh, but there's some, some, kind of really small and maybe not really well done very old studies that have used clopramine and I will say one thing that to note is they do use really low doses um, like 25 milligrams added to the SSRI and uh, in those particular studies um, that just little little flick of uh, clopramine was effective as an augmentation option but the more recent studies haven't really shown that to be the case but if you are going to try it I would say start with again start with a low dose don't think of the normal tricyclic dosing. And a lot of what we're about to talk about definitely has lower levels of evidence compared to the SSRIs. In general, there's just a lack of studies of patients who um, had, were failed responders and got a second trial of medications. They don't even know what the chances of um, benefit are when adding on additional medications. The The best reference that I that we see here um, is an expert panel that was polled in 1997 and they um, suggested that there's a 40% chance of response on a second trial of medication. But there's not actually any evidence to back that up. It's just a bunch of experts giving their opinion. Yeah. Which I think is How come we never get invited to stuff like that? I mean, we, you know, we give our opinion all the time. I guess they <laughs> That's tune true. in if they, they want they, to know. They hear it and they go, okay, don't invite them. Poll us. I say 41%. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Based on my anecdotal <laughs> research. Um, so... There's a study actually that looked at talking about going up past the max dose because that's another consideration. And there's actually some evidence with uh, sertraline specifically. And uh, they had patients who were non-responders to sertraline 200. Um, There's 200 patients in that group that basically didn't respond. And um, they could either stay on, I'm sorry, not 200. I'm thinking 200 milligrams. It was 66 patients. So before anybody calls me my nonsense, I was wrong. Um, 66 patients, um, they were on the 200 milligrams that weren't responding. So they either were randomized to stay on the 200 milligrams or they were switched to 400 milligrams as long as they could tolerate it. Um, they had, uh, they had a 52% response to the higher dose, um, you know, compared to 34% by just staying on the 200 for another 12 weeks. So again, kind of, I think, kind of two ways to look at this. One, we have some data that shows that you can just give it longer and maybe they'll, they'll still improve even if they're, if it just takes that patient longer or if you you know run the dose up and they're not having side effects, 
maybe they have an even better chance. But I think at 400 milligrams, I would be very surprised if too many people can tolerate that. It's a lot. We should... We should a lot of weight gain, I imagine. Yeah. We should uh, do an experiment live on the podcast where we both take ourselves. 400 milligrams of sertraline and we just see what happens we just every here, day. We just sit here for no, we come back six every, hours till we do, reaches its peak. We do five-minute <laughs> intervals every day for two weeks, and then we see how much weight we gain. We have to sit here till it gets to steady state. <laughs> That'd be so boring. Five half-lines. Um, we just end up throwing up the first dose. So, yeah, high doses, that's an option. Mm-hmm. Um, the, there's also, uh, are there any other... First line monotherapy options. So you may have heard of mirtazapine being used for OCD. Um, very limited data. Uh, it, it, for that reason, basically, we don't really consider it first line. So there was one small study, 30 patients um, taking 60 milligrams of mirtazapine. You might be saying, wait a second, 45 milligrams is the normal max. You'd be right, but they were using... But not here. You're but not, not here, not an OCD. Now so they're using super wrong. 60 milligrams uh, versus placebo for 12 weeks. Um and they either continued on it or they switched to placebo for another eight weeks. And the one who's, who went back to placebo lost efficacy. So they established that Mertazapine must be effective. Um, of course, that's a small study. Uh, but And that's all we got. So for that reason, wouldn't consider a first line, but maybe, maybe an option. Um, there was a study from 2019 uh, looking at the effectiveness of venlafaxine in patients who had SSRI-resistant OCD. And, you know, they basically they had equal effectiveness of, uh, to the SSRIs. Um, but it was not better. Uh, so equal, but not better. Um, and basically the concern when you start going to those higher doses of venlafaxine, obviously you get a lot more effects on norepinephrine. And so the blood pressure increases become a lot more problematic and the gastrointestinal side effects as well. So, um, again, it's probably just in your best interest and the patient's best interest to just trial another SSRI instead of trying to get fancy and use mirtazapine or venlafaxine. Be very fancy. In Isn't case. it mirtazapine and venlafaxine that's that California rocket fuel thing? Yep. Internal question? Yeah. Interesting. You know, what they, messed, you know what they messed up? What? They didn't try them together. They didn't try them together. <laughs> Had they tried California rocket fuel together. Another thing we could do <sighs> live on air. I'm, I'm telling you, yeah, they need us. Though the presumption is that we would have OCD. Right. And I don't, yeah, I think, I think what that would actually be, um, what that would actually like kind of get us to was just a lot of people thinking that we're insensitive and <laughs> stopping like to yes. listen to our podcast and we lose all of our viewers. So we yeah, won't do that. We won't do We're just going to keep doing this. <laughs> we'll stick to what we'll we're table that. moderately good at. Um, <laughs> so I think the last thing we'll kind of um, talk about is augmentation strategies. Um, if you've gone through the, the monotherapy options. So uh, there's augmentation with second generation antipsychotics. Um, novel agents, which I, which I think is interesting, and then non-invasive device-based therapy. Um, as far as the second-generation antipsychotics go, um, this algorithm recommends either aripiprazole or risperidone. Um, the dosing for this would be aripiprazole 10 to 15 milligrams, um, and then risperidone 1 to 3 milligrams per day. Um, of course, these have you know significant side effect profiles, Um, related to antipsychotics and metabolic side effects that they carry. And then Risperdal having, you know, some um, uh, side effects related to akathisia akathisia and things like that. Um, And then you also have to consider comorbidities, but um, these would be considered augmentation options. And what's interesting is the, uh, when they were actually compared kind of together, um, Risperdal actually had better efficacy than aripiprazole because I was I was like aripiprazole obviously because the side effect profile and whatnot yeah but um risperidone actually may be a better option um efficacy wise you just have to really worry about the 
tardive dyskinesia and other EPS type uh, adverse effects because you know with with it being the they call it the most the most typical atypical so it's yeah. got a lot higher risk of of those uh, EPS type issues tardive dyskinesia dystonia things like that there's other ones that have been looked at um and may have some evidence of efficacy but isn't as strong and then because of their side effect profile wouldn't be preferred um haldol would be one of those um haloperidol they've also looked at uh, seroquel and olanzapine both um their efficacy is even more questionable and they, especially in this setting, especially in this setting, especially for this disease state, and they definitely have side effects to be concerned about, so they wouldn't be recommended either. Hey, Joe, can you show my screen real quick? Um, there is a study. This is from Osser's uh, presentation that he was doing on this topic, and uh, it's the study of quetiapine and uh, clopramine is the augmentation option for OCD, and uh, these were added to flu uh, fluoxetine. So you can see um, patients, you know, on the clipramine fluoxetine, they continue to go down, um, and then the patients who are on quetiapine and fluoxetine, they went ahead and went back up and actually got almost back to their original baseline. And uh, as far as symptoms, so I thought that was super interesting for yeah, whatever those are reason. Quetiapine Neil Brown scores yeah. is what the the y axis is. Why, why bogus or why box? Why box? Um, but yeah, the uh, like in this particular case, because I, I quetiapine has a lot of good data and other you know anxiety and other things like that. But in this particular case, for whatever reason, it it does not uh, does not perform well for symptom control. Right. Okay. Anyways, cool. Thanks, dude. Yeah. So, bottom line, um, aripiprazole, risperidone are options. For Those are the two too. that had the most data. Yeah. So there's also novel agents. Um, one that he mentions in particular, I think, is um, pretty interesting, and that's um, bimantine, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's talking about the because uh, he basically goes off through all the glutam glutamatergic uh, meds, and right. yeah, that's the first one that he kind of brings up. He says it has three very positive randomized controlled trials. Uh, there's also one that wasn't as positive, didn't show any benefit. Um, but in general, it was positive with recommended dosing 5 to 20 milligrams per day titrated up. So, mm-hmm. memantine is Nem- obviously Namenda, Nemenda, which is generally yeah. used for memory issues. Mm-hmm. Right? Dementia, Alzheimer's types of situations. But That's very interesting. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And um, remember, the, the adverse effects that we're worried about with that one, dizziness, constipation, headache. Um, there's a, a extended release version as well um, that you can do. So, normally we do like starting off five milligrams daily and then we work up to five to 10 milligrams twice a day. Uh, but there's an extended release version that's seven milligrams up to 28 milligrams and you can do it once a day. Um, just to give you one simple conversion, if you have 10 milligrams twice a day uh, on the immediate release, when you switch to extended, you would just do, um, so 10 twice a day equals 28 once a day of the extended. Um, because of its limited side effect profile, some um, clinics actually will use that over the second gen antipsychotics for augmentation. Um, another glutaminergic agent that's an option, or um, glutama, yeah, glutaminergic agent. Yeah, I messed that word up too. Um, would be lamictal. It has a mm-hmm. couple of studies that show some benefit. Generally well tolerated as long as you titrate slow, um, with doses 100 milligrams to 200 milligrams a day. So um, that's an interesting option. Yeah, I think the big thing there is you need to still titrate slowly because yeah. in those lower doses because of the, the hypersensitivity reactions the skin reaction steven johnson syndrome things like that are very uh, realistic worries with yes. lamictal always go slow with that one 
extra slow. Um, there's even some data actually with augmenting with N, uh, N-acetylcysteine, mm-hmm. which they I believe that they even use the over-the-counter uh, version of it. Oh, did they? Um, and there's there's five studies that have looked at that. Three of them showed significant improvement as an augmentation option. So that's that, I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, two hundred or two two thousand milligrams per day of N-acetylcysteine is what was has been shown to be as uh, efficacious and um, few side effects. Another one they've looked at, uh, which is interesting, um, some of these are just like out of left field, but it's just because of the mechanism being... Yeah, they're glut- just looking for anything that works on glutamine. I know, anything that works on glutamine they're looking at. So rilazole, uh, which you may recognize as a treatment for... Or glutamate. We just bolstered their own... <laughs> <laughs> glutamate. Uh, glutamate. Yeah, let's go ahead and cancel the podcast. Yeah, glutamate. Yeah, what, what, would, um, what would glutamineergic be? That would glutam- literally be glutaminergic. Glutaminergic. We're talking glutamatergic. <laughs> yeah, get it right. Jeez. So rilazole you may recognize as, as a, uh, one of the novel treatments for ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, um, which we did do an episode on not too long ago. I was like, why does that drug look familiar? It does. Um, we did an episode on it. So there's three, three trials that have looked at this. Only one was positive. They would do 50 milligrams twice a day, which I think is actually the ALS dosing. Um, so it, it's something to consider, but not, not super strong. It has a fair amount of side effects, too. Yeah. Um, and then the other one that also has a lot of side effects, uh, topiramate, has some some data, although um, the risk of kidney stones is something that can be pretty problematic, especially with the higher doses. Plus, it causes a lot of issues for a vast majority of people taking it, especially as the dose goes up with cognitive impairment. And so um, the the amount of patients that I feel like can tolerate some of those higher doses of topiramate are, is not very high. Right. Um, it's also ketamine. Ketamine has one trial that was positive, a fair amount of side effects, very experimental. Uh, I think we've talked about it for the depression. I think so. Have we mentioned in, that on the podcast? In, in, yeah, I think so. And I and well, and the interesting thing with this and with ketamine is that they've used it as monotherapy. Yeah. So it's almost oh, yeah. like yeah, this is very, not augmentation. Very, yeah, this yeah. is like very like resistant. They're just trying something. There's yep. a case report also with S ketamine, the one that's uh, approved for resistant depression. Yeah. You ready? To, you want to share the the most insane augmentators that have been out there? Like, who even thought to look at that? So yeah, I would say the most insane ones that actually have like it's been studied. This isn't just like case reports. It's it's been studied. Uh, minocycline, mm-hmm. hundred milligrams twice a day. Hundred milligrams twice a day. Celebrex, two hundred milligrams twice a day. There's two studies looking at Celebrex for this. Two studies, and then Zofran. <laughs> Four to eight milligrams a day, two small studies, and then one large ongoing trial. No, it's unpublished. They didn't want to publish the results. Oh, I looked into it a little it. deeper. Yeah, that, it's just they were like, mm. and you know, scientists—they they always want to stay humble and they don't want to—they hate publishing data. So I feel like that one didn't go well. Yeah, if, if they're literally not going to publish <laughs> I'm, it, I'm thinking that one not only didn't work, but that one some people some, had some, some issues. Some not good. Some, ha- some not good happened there. It was a large study too. So, interesting. Might have been QTC related or something. Maybe. I don't know. Turns out it's not just the IV version. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so th- I know that's kind of rapid fire just because we're running out of time. But that uh, th- those are all very low evidence just, you know, kind of when we're, we've run through our normal options and we're just trying some different things. Or if they have comorbidities that would also, you know, migraines, you know, may indicate mesentopiramate as a prophylactic. So something like that, you know, mm-hmm. that's where comorbidities might come into play. But uh, not a lot of options, but really obviously trying to, to do every, make every effort to get someone established on these meds and really give it a fair trial before saying discontinue it. Yeah. Anything else with that? 
No, that's all I got. I think Good. that's about as much as we can cover OCD. Good, we've because that's all gone, I got, too. We've definitely not gone into all those extra things before. Yeah. Ever. Yeah, look at us. Look at 2023, us. new us, new podcast. New year, Coming new, at you, coming at you mic. quick. Something like that. All right, guys. Well, um, thank you for listening. Make sure that you check out freece.com. And, again, if you are an unlimited member, the password will be uh, OCD23. Take the post-activity test. Get your one-hour credit. And then go check out the other episodes that are accredited so you can just knock out all your continuing ed requirements in, in one sitting. Um, but yeah, thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you, FreeCE.com, for continuing to partner with us. If you want to check out our much more like traditional, um, boring lecture type style uh, episodes of, not, not episodes, but lectures, whatever, videos, um, we have uh, a Patreon that has a lot of the lectures that I do or there are versions of the lectures that I do for my PA students. Um, so a lot of pharmacotherapy uh, reviews and there are more PowerPoint slides and you get to download the slides, you get to watch the lecture and just have a field day with it. So everyone one's favorite Friday night. So check that out. It's like three bucks and you can steal all my content and rip me off. So there you go. Check it out. It supports us a lot. And, uh, you know, we use that to keep trying to come up with fresh things to bring you guys as well as uh, new ways of bringing you information. So we appreciate the support so much. If you have any questions for Cole or myself or AJ, whenever he gets back from vacation, um, our emails uh, will be in the show notes. You can reach us on any of the social media platforms and we look forward to hearing from you. If we haven't answered your emails or um, messages, this week, uh, Cole and I were sick as we mentioned the one episode and then stuff was just busy. And so I apologize. We'll get to it. I promise we've not forgot about you. Um, I have like six of them pinned right now <laughs> that I have to answer. So um, thank you guys for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode. Have a good night.